Welcome back, folks, to the Lewis Lead Podcast. I'm your host, Alec Lewis. Today is Friday, June 22nd. Last night was the NBA draft. So I brought on former Memphis commercial appeal sports columnist Jeff Calkins. Uh, we talked about it. We talked about who Memphis drafted and the draft as a whole. We also discussed John Calipari's time in Memphis, uh, new Memphis basketball coach Penny Hardaway, and the best barbecue you can find in the city, which I personally think is the best barbecue in the country, but Kansas City people, uh, so I'm sorry. Um, I think you'll enjoy the conversation. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. Subscribe and give us a rating and review. We'd really appreciate it. You can also find all the latest draft news and any sports news you are looking for at yahoosports.com, so go check us out there. Before we get into the interview, again, I must talk about Michael Porter Jr., the former Missouri forward who sat out most of the year after having back surgery. Last night, he slid to number 14 in the draft after a late medical push teams away, and, uh, and and I thought Denver, the Denver Nuggets at 14 walked away with the steal. I, I seriously did. At that point in the draft, the risk, I mean, the reward outweighs the risk regardless. Denver's a team that that has guys like Jokic and guys like Gary Harris who can score. There's no rush to get Michael Porter in the game. I mean, seriously, for him, like this is a nice situation to be in. You get healthy. You get perfectly healthy. Will he play in the summer league? I don't know. Will he play next season? I don't know. But as long as he gets healthy, it's fine. And Make sure your back is good to go for to have as long as a career as you can. And if you can do that, if you're Michael Porter, I think that's the best case scenario. So for him, I mean, was it surprising to see him fall? I mean, yeah, like this is a guy that could have been the number one pick had he had he not had a back injury, not needed surgery as his family thought. So, I mean, it was tough to see him and his family um, have to go through the experience that they went through. But I said on Twitter last night at Alec underscore Lewis that – I mean, this guy's going to be as motivated as he's ever been to succeed and prove people wrong. So health permitting, I, I seriously think he will do that. And I think Denver made the right choice. Is it funny that the Cronkies <laughs> own the team? Yeah, for Missouri people, it's it's quite the interesting situation. But I seriously think as long as he gets healthy, um, this is a good situation for him. And I think Denver got a steal. Enough poor talk. We've done enough of that for like – a lifetime. Um, so let's get into this interview with Jeff Calkins. Jeff, I get, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. Oh, it's good to be on. Thanks. Yeah, no problem. Um, so I guess last night was the NBA draft. We have to talk about it. What was your biggest takeaway? And I know you're in the Memphis market, so probably Jaron Jackson, I'm assuming. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously in Memphis, we're focused on, on Jaron Jackson. Um, I thought, and I have some thoughts on that as you know as it plays out. It was one of these drafts where there are some drafts where there's a true superstar at the start and at the top of the draft. And you know, there's the LeBron draft, and you sort of know what you're you're getting in those drafts. Um, the Anthony Davis draft, and, and you know what you're getting in those drafts. In this draft, even though DeAndre Ayton was the consensus number one, and I think probably will be Rookie of the Year, and people put up big numbers. There was a huge difference of opinion, um, you know, right on down the line. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, Marvin Bagley, 
goes to, and I think most people thought he would going to be would go to. But I saw that on Kevin Pelton over his big board, he had him at eight. <laughs> and I don't think, and I think that's I think that's similar in a lot of of uh, GM front offices. I think there's a huge divide of opinion on 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 a lot of these guys on Marvin Bagley. Um, on even Luka Doncic, on obviously Jaron Jackson Jr., on Trey Young is a you know wildly controversial, uh, uh, polarizing player, um, and so I'll be fascinated because in the end some of them will be all stars and some of them won't, and you know we obviously won't know how that plays out. There what there came a time you know in some drafts you have a pretty good sense of who's going to be an all star. Here I think there was just from the very start there was a lot more sort of. Um, uh, there was a lot more uh, question marks around even the very uh, even the players taking at the top of the draft. Yeah, Memphis at four was in such an interesting spot. I mean, like you mentioned, it, it felt like after Aiton that people disagreed on pretty much every player and and kind of contradicted themselves. I guess. There was talk of Luca falling to Memphis. There was talk of them taking a chance at a time on Michael Porter. There was talk of trading to get rid of the Parsons contract. Um, I mean, I think Jaron Jackson's a guy that people see who will fit in this NBA. As far as like him and him as a player, what did you think of the, of the fit and and, and what did you make of the selection and, and them going that route? Well, I mean. It's there, there's I, I think it's it's weird because there's some stuff you hear out of market that just makes no sense. For example, um, the idea of them trying to get off of Chandler Parsons' contract, it, it, that's fine. They could try to get off Chandler Parsons' contract, but it doesn't. The idea that they would have done that, for example, to trade with the Knicks and with the main thing they got back was the Knicks taking on Chandler Parsons' contract makes no sense whatsoever right. because they, they they've made the mistake on Chandler Parsons. He's got two years left. Even if you got rid of Chandler Parsons from the Grizzlies' perspective, um, with Chandler Parsons on the roster, you've got the mid-level exception is all you have to spend. If you got rid of him, you wouldn't have all of his money because there are other financial obligations. You'd have you'd be about eight million eight million dollars under the cap, which is honestly less than you're going to get at the middle mid-level exception, slightly less. So. Getting rid of Chandler Parsons' contract is no big bonanza for the Grizzlies. They, they, they made a mistake, and so oh, I think a lot of fan bases like to think, "Oh, we'll be able to. All we have to do is take on money." Right. Fan bases always like taking on money because that doesn't involve giving up draft picks and players or whatever. So, um, and then the other thing with the Grizzlies is, is, and they're in this odd spot because they got Marcus All and they have Mike Conley, exactly. and so they yeah. they do have veteran players, and they're positioned to be better um, sort of immediately. And then the other thing is they owe a first-round draft pick to the Celtics, which is devastating. It was an exchange for the Jeff, for Jeff Green. And so that's the other reason they want to be decent next year is they want to give the pick next year maybe at the very least a low lottery pick and a bad draft. And so they have, they have sort of mixed incentives. They have to rebuild, and yet they also need to um, – that they're trying to be better next year. And I actually think, given who was available, I, you know, Doncic would have been better. Doncic would have been a perfect fit for you better yeah. immediately. He was obviously the perfect fit. You slide him right in. He fits in perfectly with Mike, Mark, Doncic, uh, Dylan Brooks, to Michael Green. It's that's perfect. For sure. Yeah. Well, but he wasn't there. Like he, he, he wasn't there to take. <laughs> and so, so then everyone, because they're not really excited about anyone, and they want the Grizzlies to trade down. Um, I actually like the fact that they. 
they stayed put and picked a player they thought was the best player. And I also like the fact that they didn't weren't short sighted. Like well, they could have traded down and tried to get a Mikel Bridges who would fit in perfectly um, if the goal was simply to you know be in the playoffs or be in the eighth spot this year. Um, he's ready to play, step in, play small forward. He's a good fit in the lineup. But it's a stupid thing to do to take a short term view as opposed to a long-term view in the NBA. You should be trying to draft a guy who is going to be, at that position, one of the three best players in the league. And that's what they thought. They thought, given the players that were left, his upside, his chance to be a long-term impact player is better than anyone else's. And I honestly haven't seen this. There are worrisome things um, about his time at Michigan State. He didn't put up big numbers at Michigan State. Sometimes he couldn't put on the stand the floor at Michigan right. State. Yeah. But in terms of being a big for the modern NBA, where he can switch, he can guard any position, he can guard one through five, he can run the court, he can stretch the floor. Uh, he's basically a 40% shooter from three. Like, he's he fits all that. And yeah. so, it's not a popular pick in Memphis, but I, I kind of, I like at least the process that went into that pick. I'm curious because there were a number of reports um, leading up to the draft, like this X player doesn't want to work out with the Grizzlies, won't give anything. Wendell Carter was one of the few guys, I mean, he's from Atlanta, one of the few guys that did work out with the Grizzlies. I mean, I, in terms of those reports and players not wanting to play in Memphis, how did you see that? And, and I mean, is that concerning for people in Memphis? I don't know what you thought of it. No, it's concerning. Um, hey, listen, it's, it's it's concerning. Everyone wants to be loved, right? And <laughs> yeah, so, so from a sort of civic perspective, here's a, people take offense, but that's, I think, by and large, silly. It's obviously not a big, glamorous market, but I don't think that is largely why is is largely why there was some reluctance on the part of various players to work out of Memphis, to work out from Memphis. Um, you know, Mo Bamba made no sense for him to come to Memphis. They got Marcus on <laughs> right, sure. put both those yeah. teams on the court. Yeah. So I think a lot of that is positional. Plus, um, some of the markets that were behind Memphis and in Dallas and Chicago are more glamorous markets and people might have wanted to engineer even Orlando is, you know, at least you get Sunny Disney. Sure. And so they're a little more glamorous markets. I think to the extent that it's concerning, it's because um there is a certain lack of faith in the Grizzlies front office. I think that's simply true. And I think that's what it, most of it comes down to. And I share some of that skepticism about the front office. And so that, I think, is that is behind it as much as anything else. Is What's the direction of the franchise? How long is Chris Wallace going to be here? And is that an organization that I want to entrust my player to? Because let's be honest, it's the agent that's making right. the decisions here. So in the end, Jaron Jackson was one of the guys who did not initially, who did not never worked out for the Grizzlies and did not initially give his medicals. But he did in the end, and I think that is the player that they had zeroed in on. They did, they weren't particularly enamored of Bamba anyway. So I don't think it had much impact on how the thing unfolded, and to the extent that it, you know, it's a little understandable. I think it's. I think it's too bad, and I think it should be more like the NFL, where everybody gets the medicals for everybody. But, yeah. Um, but that's you know, be that as, as it played out, I don't think it had a huge impact. Because I go to Missouri, I have to ask about Porter um, for a second. I mean, I, I thought his falling to fourteen was one of the clear stories of the draft, and. I mean, I, there were mocks leading up to the draft that that projected him to Memphis, and some even thought Sacramento. And um, I mean, there was the report last week that he couldn't get out of bed. I just, how did you uh, view that entire situation? And I guess, I mean, 
How surprised were you when there were reports projecting Memphis as a possible landing spot with his back injury? Well, hey, Memphis would have been a perfect landing spot in the sense that they needed a three. And whether he's a four, they needed a wing player and they needed a scorer. Right. So in that sense, and also Chris Wallace has a history of loving guys who were highly ranked high school players, mm-hmm. um, athletic. And, and so were he healthy, he would have been a perfect fit in Memphis. Just like, honestly, he would have been a perfect fit in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, but it, it, particularly at this franchise, when you're picking this high, A, you can't afford to miss. And then B, given the history, the injury history of Memphis players, starting with Chandler Parsons, it would have been really kind of absurdly risky. <laughs> yeah. Once you start hearing about a guy who literally, you know, couldn't get out of bed and then who, who may not, you hear also rumors that he may need uh, additional surgery or may not play again. The right. Might have year, to sit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that you you can't take that player at four when there's a healthy, perfectly good player um, who you have as an option. The only, and this is exactly how it played out. At some point, the risk risk becomes worth it, right? And um, and so for Denver, they decided the risk was worth it. I actually, I was kind of surprised that the Clippers, with the Clippers having two picks, with Jerry West loving athletes, I thought they were Jerry West too. here. Yeah, that made it. That's another place where you would have thought um, that they might have well tried to roll the dice. But it, it's just, I mean, literally at some point the risks become become worth it, and that's what happened. The risk became worth it. Uh, Joel Embiid would have gone first probably in that draft, and the Sixers decided that the risks were worth it at four. And in the end, I think they've been proven to be right. Um, but, but. Yeah, and the other and the murkiness, of course, is that I haven't seen the medical reports. You haven't seen the medical <laughs> no, reports, and, and no. we don't know what they suggest. But obviously, there was enough ominous stuff in them that you know, fourteen is pretty dang low. Um, and so, you, you, it's one thing not to be taken one through six or something, but once you get down to nine, ten, eleven, twelve, There's and those teams are still passing on them. Yeah, that they're obviously real concern over this medical situation. For sure. And then last last thing on the draft, real quick. I, at, at 32, Memphis grabbed Javon Carter, who torched Missouri this past year. Um, and, I, I mean, I, I said before the draft, like, I love guys like him who are competitors, who have experience, defensive guys who can stretch the floor a little bit. I mean, it's a second-round pick, so I, I know it, it is what it is. But, I, I mean, I, I thought that was a really solid pick at 32. Uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. I, I, I mean, you can't not love him just because of the way he plays, right? And then, obviously, the Grizzlies have this tradition with Tony Allen and Good Grind and all that of being in your face defensive team, which they were not last year. And so, from that perspective, he's he's it seems like a perfect fit. It'll be interesting to see because there were other point guards available, starting with the guy picked right after him, Jalen Brunson, true, who, um, who I, I, honestly they grew up basically in the same neighborhood in Chicago and played on the same AAU team together at one point. Wow. And it'll be interesting to see um, who who um, who turns out to be the better player there. I, I um, you know, obviously uh, the Grizzlies went with a guy who they thought could come in and impact the game instantly defensively. They have a needed backup point guard. Uh, but you wonder about the only – Skimmings would be what is his offensive upside, mm-hmm. and um, he doesn't score well at the rim. He's not particularly explosive, but you know we've seen here in Memphis as much as anyone that how well you can change a game from the defensive end, and and he will very quickly become a fan favorite. Yeah. 
this is probably the first time you didn't write off a draft. I mean, and and how long? I don't. I can't imagine how long. Yeah. Was it weird? I don't. No. Mean, I, yeah, the whole thing has been weird. I'm in this weird situation now. I've been a columnist at the Commercial Appeal in Memphis for 22 years, and um, and I left recently. Um, honestly, because what Gannett has done to the Memphis paper is is appalling, and um, and so that's been difficult. Yeah. And then I have another opportunity that hasn't been announced yet um, for a new publication in town. It'll right. be um, written by Memphians for Memphis kind of thing. And so, but in the meantime, until they get cranked up, I've been sitting things out. And when you've been writing four or five columns a week for 22 <laughs> yeah. years, um, it is weird. And it's funny, I, I have a, there's a very fine writer on our staff or we, who was who was with the commercial appeal who's going to be going with me to the new enterprise named Chris Harrington, who writes really smart NBA stuff. Definitely. And he's just so antsy about it that he's blogging and just putting stuff up <laughs> on his own personal blog and tweeting it out. And, um, and so I could do that. It was actually suggested to me that I should write the columns um, and have a column, the lost summer, <laughs> write the columns as they unfold. And then when I get to the new enterprise, have the 10 columns or 12 columns that I would have written um, and just have them all go up, you know, as I was, um, which was kind of a cute idea. So, um, but yes, it's totally bizarre. Fortunately, <laughs> I have a radio show, so at least I get to say things. But I haven't disappeared completely. Um, but it's absolutely weird because writing is my first love and it's, sort of how I've, how I've connected to this community. And so it is strange not to be writing. Yeah. I, I, I had mono like a month ago and I, I was going two weeks without like writing or doing anything. <laughs> and and I, I was like, like get, I was so antsy to the point at which I was just like writing whatever for myself. I, I just couldn't do it. So I can't, I can't imagine if you've been doing it for 22 years and like have done it on such a big extent. And there's a, event like the draft and you can't write it i just can't imagine really the actually the nice thing is is that except for the draft free agency will be another one because these won't have a lot of room in free sure. agency but they'll do some stuff around free agency and then the pga tour came here dustin johnson won i've right. written about that um and those are the big three but otherwise summer in memphis is pretty quiet so um it's not like sitting out a football season or something like that or Penny Hardaway in the basketball season, but it's still a it is still a strange thing uh, not to be not to be writing. There's no question. Um, I, I wanted to talk about. I mean, like you said, you you were the columnist for 22 years, I, and I'm curious if I want you to kind of take me through your path from I guess growing up. I think you went to Harvard to becoming the sports columnist of the Commercial Appeal. I, I, I'm curious your path and how you landed. Um, at the commercial. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't have a, a, a typical path. You know, I grew up um, being crazy about reading about sports. For me, it was outside of Buffalo, and I read the columnist in Buffalo was Larry Felser. And so I, you know, would, would, would devour um, that. And then, but then I went to Harvard and college and then law school because people tell you you can do anything with a law degree, which I think is the biggest law. My dad um, says that. It's a trap. No, don't believe him. It's, <laughs> you can do anything despite having a law degree. Um, that's absolutely true. But <laughs> you wouldn't. You, 
wouldn't go to this idea that you go to law school for some general education is silly. Go to law school if you want to be a lawyer. Any more that you go to medical school just to sharpen your, uh, you know, your <laughs> knowledge of anatomy. It's just ridiculous. Um, and 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 I think it sucks people in because there are a lot of people who have taken social sciences, history, English, they like to write, they like politics, they whatever. And they say, oh, I'll go be a lawyer because I can do anything with a law degree. I don't really want to. I'll go to law school. I don't really want to be a lawyer. And that's, to the matter, is almost everyone who goes to law school becomes a law, a lawyer. Right. Or they hate being a lawyer and they go to something else. <laughs> but then they didn't have to spend the three years and however much money becoming a lawyer. And so my advice to people is, Go hang out with lawyers, work in a law office, work for a legal aid clinic, figure out what kind of law you want to do and if you like it. And if you like it, there are lots of happy lawyers. Yeah. Then do that. But don't just go as some general education. That's a waste of time. So <laughs> I then – but I did it because I followed prestige. You know, I took the most prestigious thing and then I of course. went and clerked on the Court of Appeals and – District of Columbia because it was the most prestigious thing. And then I went to a law firm in Washington, D.C. because it was the most prestigious thing. And they paid me a signing bonus. And that seemed cool after me about <laughs> athletes getting signing bonuses. And then at age 30, I just looked up and I was totally miserable. And um, I hated what I did. And, um, and so I wasn't sure 100% that I wanted to be a sports writer. I just knew that I'd once wanted to be a sports writer. And I didn't know that I could do it or what it would be like or so I took a leave of absence. I went to Columbia Journalism School. And after all that, after going to Columbia Journalism School, after being on Harvard Law Review, after having a law degree, after all of that, I got one job. It was with the Aniston, Alabama Star, making wow. $225 a week covering high school sports. Wow. And, it's a good um, paper, actually. So it's a really good little paper, and they yeah. took a chance on me. And I, I always – and. But it is sort of like, okay, I'm moving to Alabama to cover high school sports for summer internship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and happily, the Auburn beat opened up, and then I, I did that, and then the columnists left, and then I, I did that. And so I was there for a couple of years. And then when I decided to go take the next step, I sent my, my letters out everywhere. And a guy named Fred Turner at uh, Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel, who I'd hired – he once hired Mitch Album. He gave him his first column. Yeah. He hired Gene Wachowski. He hired um, Gordon Eads. He hired uh, uh, some of these people you might not know. Steve Hummer. He hired like lots of. He made he, uh, Bill Plaschke. Okay. He had done. He's done a lot of great hires. And he, for some reason, he loved the, the weird stuff and so the <laughs> curious roots. And so he he hired me to cover the Marlins, and I did that for a couple of years, and then uh, and then. The commercial appeal came calling and and gave me my chance to write a column. And so I thought I'd be here for two years and then move on. But the truth of the matter is, I it was everything I sort of wanted. It, it I connected with the city. I could cover back then. You know, I've covered eight Olympics and lots of Super Bowls and Masters and Kentucky Derbies and anything. You know, and and so it's been a blast. And it and and it then you sort of could get this connection between a newspaper and a city for sure um that really doesn't exist i don't think anymore and so i was thrilled to be able to done it to, to do it when i did it and i'm still doing it but it's it's changed dramatically and um and um everywhere you look i mean just this just this week there was carnage at the buffalo news which is the paper yeah. that i grew up yeah. reading when 
two columnists left. Uh, Jerry had they had their columnists taken away from them Tim because Graham, they were saying things that were unpopular. Yeah. Tim Graham goes through the athletic. He's a tremendous writer. Amazing. Um, really great takeout writer. And and so papers themselves are becoming less relevant. And um, and honestly, you've got a lot of chains that instead of trying to produce good journalism are just trying to get clicks. And with no real understanding of whether those clicks will ever convert into money or a real rational economic plan. True. And so I was in a situation where, you know, Zach Randolph would get arrested with weed, a backpack of weed, and they'd say, you know, could you write a column about that? And of course I would. I, didn't, I would have anyway. But it gets a lot of clicks. And so then they say, write another column about that. Yeah. And he's like, well, I, I kind of said what I had to say. But that one gets a lot of clicks, and so then they say, write another column about that. <laughs> yeah. And it it just, it perverts the, if you're just chasing clicks, it perverts the sense of what is, uh, what you should be writing about in the storytelling. And so, um, so I sort of lament what a lot of local papers have become, and certainly what our local paper has become. Mm-hmm. I, of all the things you covered, I mean, I think a lot of people center probably on the Calipari years and, and that time period of Memphis basketball. Looking back on that time period, how, I guess for you, how fun was that? And, and just how do you view that time period of Memphis basketball? Oh, it's a time that will never happen again. I mean, it was to go to three straight elite eight uh, championship game is crazy. Um, so it was, you know, magnificent. Um, it was also, it it was, so it was a blast. I mean, and and they were fun characters. Chris Douglas Roberts was fun and Derek Rose was fun. And, and uh, Joey Dorsey was fun. And so all these characters, John was wide open back then. Like you could, you could go in and watch any practice, the whole practice. I was going to ask whenever he's like, um, and so it was, that was tremendous. It was also very difficult from the perspective of a columnist because if you criticized him, John thrives on enemies. Like he loves picking fights. And so um, I would write a column that wasn't even particularly critical and he quickly classified me as an enemy. And so when he is so wildly popular, and he has classified you as an enemy and he is using his radio show to say you're an enemy and stuff like that, it does sort of test you a little bit. For um, sure. You know, there's a player named Jeremy Hunt who beat up his girlfriend and um, I wrote that he should be suspended and uh, and and, it, and it, that if he played, that Memphis fans should walk out. And John just just was furious over that and um you know, one thing after another and so it's hard to go against a really i wouldn't criticize his basketball stuff because why would i like he was winning at an unbelievably high level yeah but or he'd do things like for example a, a bunch of players would get him they got in a fight and he suspended them and then he realized that his point guard got hurt. That his point guard got hurt, so he realized he needed one of those players who he previously suspended. So he unsuspended <laughs> the player, saying, um, "We're going to suspend him for the first conference game instead because it'll be more meaningful." Well, the first conference game was against Tulane, right? So totally, <laughs> of course, you know, whatever. And the first yeah. real game was—I don't remember the circumstances. It was like in Madison Square Garden or something against you know a big time game. Yeah. 
So I would write a column saying how farcical that was, and John would just go after you. Um, you know, John, and and it's why people like Pat Forty and me and others have sort of uh, Jeff Goodman, lots of folks clash with John. Because John always kind of wanted to clash, like he wanted to fight. And he, he would always wonder why he was treated one way by the media and Bill Self was treated another way. Because Bill Self is necessarily the most pristine no, of course uh, record either no. in terms of players and discipline and whatnot. But the truth of the matter is it's because John brings it on himself. Like John <laughs> picked fights. And, so, um, and so it was both the most fun. It's great to see the program succeed. It's more fun. People don't realize this. Most journalists want their program they cover to succeed because more people read this stuff because sure. it's more fun. But it was also a little bit difficult because John himself was so um, – so uh, the, uh, the word I would choose is vindictive in the <laughs> way he would uh, – even the way he would react to criticism. Yeah. I, I'm curious like when – I mean you say he clashed kind of on his – like made you an enemy on the radio show. Did, like was it personal – like would he like contact you after this like and and, and kind of be difficult like on a personal – in a personal sense too? Well, his assistants would call and scream at you. <laughs> but John wouldn't – would pretend to be above it. Like and um, – but he would make references. He would call people the miserables. It was the great <laughs> – one of the great lines That's he amazing. used. He'd say – the miserable, because it's a little Trump-esque, because if you label someone with the perfect label, um, like Little Mario or whatever else that sticks, and you don't have to deal with any of the actual uh, substance of what they're <laughs> offering, if you just say, if you just call the people who are object to something you did in your program, like playing as someone who beat up his girlfriend, if you just call them the miserables, everyone laughs. <laughs> the fans all laugh. Right, he yeah. was one of the miserable, but like that. The most, the most pointed thing he ever did is he came over to me. Is he had a right hand man named Smitty? Smitty came to me one day and said, "Hey, my buddy and I have a bet that um, that what bar exam you passed? I think it was the math bar. He thinks it was the DC bar. <laughs> well, that's a weird bet. Yeah. Like, well, who would bet what bar I passed? I can't imagine. And I subsequently learned that they were trying to prove that I hadn't passed any bar, which is why I was a sports writer, because they could then say, Calkins is a sports writer, because he couldn't pass the bar. <laughs> As it happened, I passed the New York bar, because you could pass the New York bar and then wave into D.C. where I practiced. And so, But it's like that. Like You criticize Calipari, and he wants to hurt you. Like that's, <laughs> how, that's how he's wired. Wow. And um, it becomes deeply personal. And, um, and, you know, he's never sort of gotten over it and, and that's fine. He did great things for the program and for the city of Memphis. And it was a time when it'll never be in terms of basketball, it'll never be that much fun again. Yeah. I want to segue from, um, from one Memphis coach to another. Obviously I think the story in Memphis these days is Penny Hardaway who was hired at Memphis, um, this past year after, um, after Josh Passner left and after Tubby left from your angle, how wild has it been to see Penny step in as the head coach of Memphis basketball? Oh, it's been unbelievable. I, the, the, the program was moribund under Tubby. Um, Tubby is the, the, the single worst promoter PR 
guy, combination promoter, PR guy, recruiter <laughs> that I've ever seen in my life. He's just not interested in any of those things. He just wants to coach basketball. And he doesn't want to do any media. He doesn't want to do any promotion. He doesn't want to whip up excitement for a program. It doesn't he's work. not interested. It's not just that he's not – he's just not interested in a four-star player. He just would have no use for a four-star player. And <laughs> he wants to get two-star players and coach them up. And it, it was – it was normally when you get rid of an unpopular coach like Josh Baston was at the end, you get a bump. Um, but, but Memphis got no bump because Tubby was so bad. And so tickets were descending already and continued to descend – after uh, after Tubby was gone, um, after Tubby arrived, and so having Penny has absolutely breathed life into the program. Partly because people love Penny, partly because he's been recruiting off the charts, and partly because I think people thought that this institution of Memphis basketball, which has been so beloved, that it was gone forever. And um, and so it's it's not, and it's people are just rejoicing at that. Yeah. I'm curious how, how successful you think he can be. I mean, short term and long, but also how much will depend. A lot has been talked about James Wiseman, who um, is, a, is a guy that is interested in Memphis and Kentucky and a, a major big time recruit. How, how do you how successful do you think Penny can be? Well, I think um, at one level, he's already been successful in the sense that he's He's, he's totally rejuvenated season ticket sales and excitement and all that stuff. So that's been a success. Obviously, that will depend in the long term on whether he can win. Um, I don't think he has to get James Wiseman. Um, it would be unbelievable if he did, the number one player in the country. Um, although it's interesting, James Wiseman isn't going to come in and like Myron Bagley put up 24, 20, and 12 or something. He's just not that kind of a player. He's going to be a, he's a very gifted player, but. Um, but I don't think that he has to get James Wiseman. Um, he will, he's already, he came in and in a span of three weeks put together a top 25 recruiting class. And so, um, it, it, as long as he continued to recruit at that level, and I think he'll get better, um, as long as he continued to recruit at that level, um, I think that's that's good enough. Trendon Watford's a kid who I think you yeah. may likely get. Um, I think you probably will get him. I did too. Uh, Indiana and Alabama are also in, interested in him, but I suspect he'll end up coming to Memphis. Mike Miller has deep connections to him. Yeah. And so he, he, he's got to get some of these guys, but he doesn't have to get uh, James Wiseman. And then, so then the question is, can he coach? And we nobody knows. It's <laughs> the questions are twofold. Can he run a program? And can he coach? And we don't know the answer to that. But I will say people who like to offer up Clyde Drexler or something as a example of someone who was not successful. Well, Clyde Drexler went directly from the NBA um, to coaching in college basketball. Um, Penny Hardaway went from playing in the NBA. He then coached in middle school. He then coached an AAU team. He then coached a high school team. Um, and now he's getting a chance to coach a college team. If he weren't iconic Penny Hardaway, his resume is the resume of a grinder, of a guy like uh, John Beeline, Beeline, who sort of worked himself up from the bottom, yeah. um, curiously enough. And so I do think he'll be successful in the end. And, and the other thing is, is, at least immediately, you know, the, the American Athletic Conference is not um, – uh, 
honestly, it's diminished this year. I think Connecticut UConn made a good hire, and so that'll they'll be better and they'll be back. But I don't think it's a murderer's row. You should always be good at Memphis in the in the American Athletic Conference. I think the thing for me about Penny too, and and you touched on it, is, I mean, he he coached and had an AAU program, and I think in this day and age of college basketball, the importance of that is is kind of probably understated in terms of just knowing how the AU circuit works, knowing how um, how just how college basketball works, being on the grassroots roots level. And I think that's something that a lot of people maybe overlook or understate. Right. I mean, obviously there are AAU coaches who've been unsuccessful and there's been professional players who've been unsuccessful. He's both of those things, though. And you're exactly right. You've been recruiting <laughs> to his AAU team for exactly. a long time. Yeah, exactly. You know, and he got James Wiseman to move from Nashworth, Nashville's Ensworth School, which is one of their swishest, most you know, fanciest schools in the state, to come play in Memphis for East High School. So um, he's been recruiting for a long time. He knows how it works. So, yeah, he knows how it works. And then he also has connections to the players. Now, that'll go away because so he won't have his particular players. He's only got a couple more years. Well, that will be relevant. But he knows the circuit backward and forward. And so um, I do think it is it is an asset. I, it, to me, and the other thing that people really worried about with Penny is they worried about whether he'd be with, good with the media. And he's been unbelievable with the media. Now, he's not open like John. He's, he's hard to get a hold of. He's <laughs> right. not a coach who will ever give you his cell phone. But when he talks... He's very good, um, and uh, he says interesting things. He says things that are probably too open at times, um, and so he's been very good with that part of it. I think I think one of the people things I think people generally assume if an NBA player becomes a college coach, it's, it's kind of a lark. And for Penny, because his pro career wasn't what he wanted it to be, ultimately because of injuries, it was ultimately disappointing. I think this is another run at it. I think he's fiercely competitive. It's yeah. not just that he wants to put Memphis back on the map. He wants to redeem himself in a way and achieve greatness that sort of eluded him, at least in his mind, as an NBA player. He got marked commercial greatness and obviously lasted a long time in the NBA and he just had his great moments, but an ultimately unsatisfying career, I think. And so he is unbelievably competitive and, and he talks openly sort of to a crazy degree about national championships and that kind of thing. And so I think that's one of the things that people are underestimating about Penny Hardaway. Before getting to a few quick hitters, I, 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 one last question, and I kind of wanted to end on this in a sense. I have a bunch of Memphis friends, people from Memphis, and, and you've touched on it throughout, I think, our conversation, but it feels to me has always felt like this, and I've, I've been to Memphis a bunch being a kid from Birmingham. It always feels like Memphis people have more pride in their city than anywhere else that I've been. And I, 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 I like think about this a lot and talking to my friends from Memphis, and, I'm, and I, I mean you've been there for a long time and have been, in, <laughs> I guess, embedded in the city for a long time. I want to know what you think of this, and I want to know if you'd agree, and and maybe and why Memphis people have, seem to have so much pride in their city. It's such an interesting thing to say because for the longest time, and when I moved here, um, it was just the opposite. What you would hear from Memphis and Memphians all the time is that the city has an inferiority complex, and you would get. Um, I mean, that's really the biggest cliche thing that Memphians say about Memphis is that it has 
superiority complex and that, um, you know, they'd wonder why you'd move to Memphis and that kind of thing. And so you move into the city. And I come from Buffalo, which is obviously a kind of a similar, very different in snowfall, but otherwise sort of a, a underrated uh, small market beaten about the head kind of city. And, um, and, um, and, and so there really, I think there was this inferiority complex, but I think over the last 20 years, that has changed dramatically. And it evidences the fact that you just said you've never known a city a city where people have more pride in it. I think my kids grew up in a, in a city that's very different than the one that existed beforehand. And I think there is now this sort of, listen, people in Memphis hate Nashville and they hate Nashville partly out of jealousy because it's so <laughs> prosperous yes, and, yeah. and everything else. But they also they take real pride in the sort of authenticity of Memphis. And, um, it is its own place that is not like any other place. And no, it's not glamorous. And um, and there is a certain chip on the shoulder quality to that. But the nice thing is, is that I do think there is a sense in Memphis of that you matter and that people make a difference. So I, I have lots of nieces and nephews who've, who've lived and moved, moved to San Francisco or New York or somewhere, Chicago and whatnot. And I think if you go to those places, you go in part because of everything you can take out of those places. Whereas in Memphis and a city like Memphis, I think one of the great things about it is, is that you can make a contribution and that it matters. Everyone matters here. And it's one of the reasons why I decided, you know, I thought about, I thought I'd probably stay for two years when I first got here. But in the end, um, I stayed for, for 22. Um, because because of the deep sense of place that exists here and um, and the sense of mattering that exists here. And so, um, you know, I don't know how it compares necessarily to Birmingham in that regard or Kansas City or, or St. Louis or anywhere else in that regard. Um, I think there's pride in those cities as well. But I know that here it has changed. It has flipped around. It used to be a place where Memphians were their own worst critics. And now I think there is a... Um, a real sense of, you know what, this is a pretty cool place in its own right. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, a few quick ones here. Um, favorite barbecue restaurant in Memphis? Well, it's I, I, a favorite. I, I would I, the, the, the one that <laughs> tops most people's list now is Central Barbecue, and I think they're really good. Yeah. Um, they have, because they have, they've got good barbecue. The nachos. They've got good uh, yeah, they got sort of they got good chicken wings, which is in barbecue. But like, I think they're pretty good across the board. So if you look at polls, that one usually wins most of the contests. Now, I'll speak up for two different places. I love the barbecue shop because they have they serve Texas toast with their wow. uh, like their barbecue plate, and I think it's absolutely delicious. I don't like chopped; I like pulled. They do chopped <laughs> and pulled, yeah. but I like their pulled pork with. Texas toast plate is really good. And then the other one is, is weirdly enough, the rendezvous gets a wrap as a tourist place. Don't go there. It's not real Memphis, et cetera. I honestly think even the bad Memphis, the chain Memphis place, like Corky's has sort of become almost a chain, a really fantastic barbecue. But I, I love the rendezvous. Yeah, I think it's good. I think, yeah, and people like that. Ah, there's too many Corky's. It's become sort of a, you know, I don't know how many locations there are in the country. I think Corky's is really good. But I think, I think the rendezvous in terms gets a bad rap inside the city. It's still the biggest tourist place to go. To sort of, but it's it's got a cool atmosphere. Um, it's it has real history attached to it. I don't like the dry ribs as well, 
but I think actually it has the best barbecue nachos in town. Wow. And the other thing it has is the brisket is out of this world. And so I would recommend if anyone go that they get like you can get a half brisket, half shoulder, half brisket, half rib plate. And that's uh, depending on whether you like the ribs, um, that would be a way to go. But I think the barbecue nachos and the brisket at the rendezvous are fantastic. The rendezvous are fantastic. Good stuff. I'm a longtime UAB season ticket holder. Um, it, it's my team. Like I, I people. Someone asked me last night during the draft, like, "Who's your team?" UAB basketball is my. I don't know. For some reason, it will always be my team. So I have to ask, um, what is the most memorable Memphis UAB basketball game that uh, that comes to mind, and, and why? The weirdest thing was is that like forever Memphis, Memphis. I don't know how many in a row they won. I, a at ton. Some point, I don't even like want to think of twenty-two or sixteen or eighteen or like they would just <laughs> and there would be some great games and Memphis would just always win. Yeah. Uh, but the the most memorable one was the memorable one because Pierre Niles from Memphis smacked a UAB fan, <laughs> yeah, I believe, of course. and so that was the one that probably sticks out the most uh, because. I mean that was and that was that was the wild wild west under John. So, like, John had some interesting players, and Pierre Niles was one of them. And so, I think that's probably the one that I remember more than any other. Yeah, it's a it's a game that hurts to think about daily. Um, <laughs> uh, and then lastly, and I say this just knowing how many great writers have come through the commercial appeal sports section. So this is going to be a tough tough one to pick. Who is your favorite old Memphis beat writer? Well, that is a tough one. <laughs> Let's go through some of the choices. Uh, some of the ones who, I mean, you can go way back with columnists who, who preceded my time here or who are in the ground. And there were like great, it's one of the things when you, you know, I sort of feel like I inherited a tradition of great writing when I got here. Um, but in terms of just like, there's a beat writers. You have Lynn Zinzer who went on to the New York Times. You had Tom Shad, who went on to he's with USA Today right now. Yeah. You had Dan Walken, who obviously went on to, to USA. Mike Today Leach's best friend right now. You had Scott Cassiola, who went on to the well, first the Wall Street Journal and now the New York Times. You have Ron Higgins, who went on to now he's at the New Orleans Times Picayune. You had Mike DeCourcy, who went on to now he's at the Sporting. Sporting I'm going to miss people. Uh, there's a guy named Zach McMillan who was really good. Who's no longer in the business. Michael Cohen was there. Um, oh, Michael Cohen was unbelievably good, and he's really talented. And he's up in in Green Bay now, covering the yeah. Packers. Uh, the guy who's here now, Mark Giannato, he's is great. like holding up that newspaper all by himself. <laughs> it it's feels like it. He's just like he's a one man. There's a smaller sports department in the commercial field, much smaller than there was at the Aniston Star when I was there, um, when I started there. So um, I, it is like I have, and I'm not, I apologize to anyone I forgot. Um, in terms of my own sense of, like, there's so <laughs> many. So many of those guys are great. Yeah, it's impossible. So many are great. But in terms of my own sensibilities, the person who I sort of, read and think I would have liked to have written that piece, Scott Cassiola. 
is um, like he's hilarious. Yeah, and he amazing. is. First of all, he has. It, it is weird. Like he has no ego whatsoever. He has a reverse ego, and so I, I admire that. He thinks everything he does is horrible, like a lot of <laughs> good writers. And um, and then he has this sort of dry sense of humor, and he likes finding the quirky thing, which is like Dan Wilkins, unbelievably good. He's a great columnist. He's a great reporter on top of being a columnist. He's the kind of person who wakes up with a thousand opinions. I have to work to develop an opinion, right? So I think Dan's great, just for example, just to take one other example. Um, Mike's great. Like, there's so many that are great. I think we forgot for Gary me, Parrish. Oh, Gary Parrish. Mike, <laughs> heck, one of my best friends. Like, Gary's unbelievable. I, I cannot believe I forgot Gary Parrish. I'm like, I'm on with Gary Parrish every day at five. <laughs> right. Gary went from being a, in the radio, Gary went from being a high school writer um, to being the Memphis beat writer because he broke the Albert Means story, and he is like he is obviously a national college basketball writer and a you know he's a national voice of college basketball. Yeah. He's on TV. He does a great, <clears throat> wildly successful radio show, and is one of my best friends. So I apologize. Gary. <laughs> I almost think of him as larger than life. Like he's a TV guy now, yeah. as much as anything else. Um, so he's unbelievably good. Gary's unbelievably good um, in terms of pure writing, though. Like, like it's Cassiola, because like he does the kind of thing yeah. that, and maybe these like Hill, for example, he was covering the curling team in the Olympics, and he <laughs> noticed a guy, one of the members of the curling team, had this old pair of shoes, and they looked like what the hell, the most tattered shoes in the world. <laughs> so he wrote a piece on, and it turns out the guy had been wearing the same shoes for fifteen years or something like that. It was. A, kind of, some of it was superstitious. Some of it he just couldn't find shoes he was comfortable with. So he wrote a piece about all the unbelievably fantastic shoes at the Olympics. $300, $900, $1,700 shoes. And then this one dude who's the curling team who has $20 shoes that he's been wearing for 15 years. And so that was hilarious. And then he followed it up by going shoe shopping with the of guy course. and buying the yeah. guy. The New York Times bought the guy a new pair of shoes. And so for me, like... Gary's going to break stories. He's going to write funny stories. Yeah. He's going to write whatever. The quirky. Um, but the, I like the quirky stuff, yeah. the stuff off the beaten path. And for me, that's 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 probably uh, that's probably Scott. Is it fits my sensibilities more than anyone else? But I have, you know, unbelievable admiration. It's really incredible what is it, the number of people who have come through here yes. and the good works that they have done. Um, and um, yeah, and it's 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 been unbelievable. Yeah, well, I, can't j- lie. I cannot believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought it was like a. I was like, heck well, yeah! Like, I knew, I knew. Gary Parrish. Yeah, I'll talk to you at five o'clock. It'll be hilarious. Um, well, Jeff, I, I can't thank you enough for the time. Looking forward to the the next venture. Seriously, you do a great job, and and this was fun. So I, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, and I, I seriously it was fun. You're nice to have me on. Thanks very much. Best of luck. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jeff Calkins. I certainly did. He's a guy I've read for a long time, a guy I highly respect, as all of the Memphis beat writers that he mentioned. I mean, the, the Commercial Appeal newspaper in Memphis has had such a fantastic sports section over the years. So, like Jeff said often throughout the, the podcast, it's it's unfortunate to see where the paper is at, but that's the state of the business, and it's an interesting situation for me to be in as a as a prospective journalist and a lot of people that I think will listen to this podcast it's it's interesting kind of fascinating to have to navigate um, 
the business and with where we're at. So Jeff was awesome. I think his take on the Memphis Grizzlies situation was very accurate, and I think it'll be interesting to see what Penny Hardaway can do as the head coach of a major men's basketball program in college basketball. So I appreciate you listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Alec underscore Lewis. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. We'll be back next week with another guest. If you have a suggestion, shoot it over. Uh, but there's a few people I'm trying to lock in for sure. Um, enjoy your weekend. I hope your draft went well. Um, and with that, we'll say peace from the Lewis Lee Podcast.